we do see that there is less stigma, in a sense, there's less cultural stigma around wearing masks in public in Asian countries where you've been through a number of these pandemic situations, where you have had this type of threat more often than we have here in the West. If everyone wore a mask, the best science that I have seen, the best science that I have been exposed to suggests that everyone wearing a mask would be more effective than quarantine. I'm not saying it'd be 100% effective. I'm not saying that it would you know, stop everything all at once. But if we're trying to expand out this curve and make things a little more manageable for our healthcare system by slowing down the transmission of this virus, by all accounts, wearing masks in public would do that. Here's the thing. I don't think we'll do it. I don't know as Americans will actually do it. You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I want to make sure you know before we kick off things here at the top that we are doing a series of live web broadcasts essentially every Tuesday from now until <laughs> for the indefinite future. I think we've got four or five of them scheduled, but uh, go check it out. We are going to be doing a series of free live web broadcasts I did the Strong America Tour presentation last week. I'm going to be rerunning that this week. I'm going to be doing it live again Tuesday night of this week. But Tuesday during the day, we're going to have Joe Minicosi on doing some Economics 101. I'm going to follow that up the week after with Confessions of a Traffic Engineer, our transportation presentation. We've got some neighborhood development stuff coming up, some housing stuff. We're going to do a reprise of Joe, kind of a 2000-level presentation from him. And so there's a lot here to choose from. We know people are adapting, going through this transition along with us. We're trying to, because we can't go out and do events, we can't go reach people in person the way we're used to, we're trying to put as much of that available online as we can. And so go get signed up. You do have to register. Register to participate in those and share them with people and let people know this is a great opportunity. If you've wanted to go to a Strong Towns event, if you've wanted to hear me present or Minicozi present or someone else uh, in our orbit present, you're going to get a chance to hear. And so in, invite people. Let them know uh, what's going on and, and help us get this message out. As I want to just remind everybody, we're so grateful for our members, the people who have stepped up and donated to us over the years. We have this strong base of support from thousands of people giving us $5 and, and $10 and $25 and $100 a month or whatever the level is, it's astounding. And it's really put us in a position where we can go through something like this and have this strong base of support to fall back on. That being said, we know it's a hard, difficult time for people out there. If you have the means and the wherewithal to become a member of Strong Towns, that's how we're sticking around. That's how we're helping others. That's how we're uh, working to get this message out in front of more and more people. You can go to strongtowns.org, click on events to get those web broadcasts, click on become a member to sign up and be a member of Strong Towns today. 
I've been thinking a lot about what comes next. It's one of these things where there's a lot of people going to say, well, no one ever anticipated coronavirus. And, and of course, that's not true. <laughs> not in, in any way. And we've tried to make the case here that even if you weren't predicting a SARS-like virus hitting in March of 2020, there were enough reasons to be concerned about the the rickety bridge, the, the fragile places that we've built and created. The analogy comes from Nassim Taleb, the idea that it's not the last car to drive over the rickety bridge that's the problem. It's the fact that you built a, a, a rickety bridge. And when you build a fragile economy, when you build an economy that makes your cities, towns, and neighborhoods financially fragile and unstable, you get what we've got, which is a very quick implosion when things start to slow down and stop. I've been thinking, though, a lot not necessarily looking back, but at, at what comes next. I want to walk you through a, a mental exercise that's been going around in my brain for a while now. There's a book by Jared Diamond, one of my favorite authors, a, a person that I have read. Every book that he's written is absolutely, utterly fascinating. He wrote a book called Collapse. And Collapse is about I can't remember the subtitle, but it's like, you know, why some societies fail and, and others adapt. But it goes through and it has example after example after example of societies that faced existential problems and they couldn't work them out and they failed. Easter Island is the most haunting one. You have a civilization of people who, if their boat blew off course or whatever it was, wound up on this remote island, Easter Island. And the amazing thing is, for Polynesian society, this place was a utopia. It had great fishing. It had great soil. It had, you know, a great quarry. You could get good flint, good rock. You could build a great society off of the resources on this island. And that's what they did. And over many centuries, this society grew from dozens to hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands. But it was on an island. And, uh, you know, when you cut down the trees on the island, the soil starts to erode. Uh, when you break it up for agriculture, it starts to erode. You don't realize that, you know, the soil is great because it accumulated literally through the dust from volcanic eruptions over thousands of years. So this is not soil that was ever going to be replenished in anyone's lifetime. You know, it wasn't even going to be replenished in centuries. So as you used it up and it, as it eroded into the ocean, it was gone. Uh, as you cut down the trees, the trees were trees, again, that took centuries to grow. You were not going to grow any trees back on this barren rock in the middle of nowhere. And so all of a sudden, and, and the reasons are unclear from a causal standpoint, the trigger standpoint, but again, you get back to the rickety bridge analogy. At some point, they reached a point where the island could not support the population that was there, and the entire thing collapsed. The estimates are in one year it went from over 40,000 people to under 1,000. Uh, when Europeans landed on Easter Island for the first time, they were confronted with cannibals. And this kind of mystery, because there were these tiny, malnourished, underfed, cannibalistic humans living on this barren rock, with no trees, no significant vegetation, no indication how they ever could have arrived here, yet were surrounded by these massive statues 
these statues that, you know, given the sophistication of the people that were there seemed just impossible, you know, impossible to the point where they must have been built by aliens, that kind of impossible. The reality is, is that there was a, a civilization there, uh, one that had outlived and, and outstripped its capacities and completely collapsed. That one haunts me. And I actually have, <laughs> I'm sitting here in my office, at my house and in my basement office, and I've got a uh, Easter Island statue sitting here. I love these statues. I've got a bunch of them I put in my backyard garden. Drives my wife and kids nuts, but it's one of these meaningful things. I mean, it's like a humbling thing, you know, like stay focused, stay humble. You get too big for yourself, too big for your own britches, right? And uh, you're going to lose sight of what's important. The one that has stuck with me, besides the Easter Island one from that book, is the story of the Vikings. It was the Vikings of Greenland, the Nordic Greenland Vikings. And it's interesting because, you know, these are, from a hereditary standpoint, my people. I'm something like three-fourths Norwegian. And the family, to the extent that we look back at our heritage, it's a Nordic heritage that I come from. And when I read this chapter, I, it just struck me because we like to think here from Minnesota that we're smart, prudent people, that we're thoughtful and rational, that we would do things out of an abundance of, of common sense and rationality. I think sometimes we impose that on our, you know, our Nordic ancestors, even though maybe there's not a lot of reason to think that's true. Back in those days, uh, the Nordic were often looked at as more savage and backward and barbarian than some of the more sophisticated parts of even Europe. Nonetheless, uh, the Nordic left Scandinavia, traveled to Iceland, and then on to the green shores of what would be known as Greenland. The colonies that they set up there were very successful. They were able to populate these places. With a lot of immigrants coming over, they were able to establish churches and cities, countrysides and pastures. They were able to bring in their animals and uh, farm these places. The problem is, again, you get into the resource depletion. You have a very small growing season. The years that the Nordic arrived in Greenland were unseasonably warm. You were able to go out and essentially utilize the abundance that had grown there. But once you did, you found that it did not replenish itself very quickly because of kind of the stress of that environment. The Nordic Greenlanders had a society that culturally was based around, and, and this is an oversimplification, but I think it's, it's useful for us to look at it this way is based around a hierarchy that was very closely related to the types of food that people would eat. The very wealthy would eat beef. And, you know, if you were very, very wealthy, if you were at the top of the hierarchical pyramid here, if you were a priest, um, if you were a leader, you had beef cows. You were able to go out and, and slaughter and eat beef. And beef was not a regular part of your, your diet, but on holidays and on special occasions and, and you know what have you, you were able to get access to beef. If you were what I think we can think of as like middle class or the, the mid-tier of Nordic Greenlanders, you were eating something more like lamb 
or pig. That was more in your class. On special feast days, that would be the, the thing that you would have access to. If you were poor, you would also get meat, but your meat would be more like something like goat, something that would be harder, less tasty, something that didn't need as much nurturing to survive and and but subsequently you know wasn't as as good on the palate going down in a sense and so there was a social hierarchy that was not based around food but was in a sense reflected in and reinforced in food and dietary cultural ways that they approached their meals as things started to break down as they had some more normal winters as you know, the temperature started to turn colder, as the cattle would go out and graze in the field and eat up all the grass and the grass wouldn't grow back because the growing season wasn't long enough. Those kind of things started to happen. What you saw is that Norse society went through a collapse of sorts. When they actually found, they had some winters when the sea was frozen over and they couldn't actually get ships in there to trade and to, in a sense, top off and refuel the supplies of the Greenlanders. Uh, when they finally did come back and arrive, they found them all gone. They were all, they were all dead. And there were indications that the Inuit, the native people who lived in Greenland, had come in and, and essentially killed them, you know, what was left of them and, uh, you know, had some destruction in their villages and what have you. The interesting kind of juxtaposition is the decisions that the Nordic Greenlanders had to make while they were starving. One of the things that is interesting today, looking back on this culture, is to grasp that they didn't eat fish. I think of like my grandmother growing up and the the lutefisk and the herring and these just stinky abominations of food that we would be uh, inundated with when we would be with the very Norwegian part of the family. All this stuff is fish-based. If, if you go to Scandinavia today, there's a, a preponderance of fish-based food. It's almost like when I think of Nordic food today, I think of my grandmother's cookies and you know those kind of delicacies. But then I think of food that is very bland, very fish-based, and uh, kind of the opposite of what I think my palate would certainly like today. Back then, though, they did not eat fish. Fish was considered gross. It was considered unclean. It was considered lower than low class. And beyond that, the fact that the Inuit ate fish made them and kind of reinforced the notion within this cultural hierarchy that they were somehow a little bit savage, a little bit less than the rest of us. And so you can picture, and, and this is the picture that I have in my mind, and this is the picture that was kind of painted by Jared Diamond. You can imagine these Greenlanders starving to death, their culture being undermined by the fact that they had no food. This would have been a shared circumstance at some point between the poor and the middle class and the wealthy. But regardless of at what point in the process it was shared, there was certainly social tension to go along with the, the food deprivation. My guess is that a lot of the cows survived a lot 
less, you know, long than the goats did. Goats are pretty hardy species. One of the reasons why poor people have goats is they can eat anything. They can survive off of very little. And, you know, that's reflected in the quality of the meat, but it's also reflected in the hardiness of, of the species. You can imagine the wealthiest people there losing their cows and going, what? Now I have to eat lamb? Yuck. Like, what, what, what does this world come to? But you can see going down this slope how at some point they run out of food completely. And they're left with the option of copying, if they want to survive, the savage backward, I'm doing those in, in air quotes, Inuit, of actually like consuming fish. And here's the fascinating thing. They died. They could not make that change. Their culture was not able to adapt and allow them to make that change so that they could step outside of the established systems they had, stepped outside of their comfort zones, stepped outside of their hierarchies, and actually learn something from the Inuit who had lived in these places for thousands of years, were well adapted to it, understood how it worked, knew what you needed to do to survive. The Norse Greenlanders couldn't make that shift. And so they perished. They, they literally died. And you can reduce it to this. They died instead of deciding to violate their cultural norms and do something as simple as eating fish. They chose, in a sense, to die as opposed to evolve. I'm looking around today at the coronavirus outbreak, and I'm seeing... The Asian countries that have, you know, to one extent or another, and, and there's some issues of reporting and, and what have you, but even in the places where you have a more free press, a less authoritarian government, uh, the, the idea of questioning authority is, is different in Eastern cultures than it is in Western cultures. But I think in places like Singapore and South Korea, I'm trusting the numbers that are coming out of these places, Right. What you see is that they have seemed to be able to get the virus under control without a vaccine, without overwhelming their medical system and, and surging the ICU capacities there and, and ramping those up. They have been able to get this under control. And largely what it seems like, one of the main factors of this shift is that as a society, they are very used to and comfortable with wearing masks. We've all seen the photos and we've seen them because they seem a little bizarre to us here in Western culture. We've seen the photos of Asian people from Asian countries walking around in the streets with everyone wearing masks. If you've traveled to an airport, if you've been in, you know, an airport where you have international travelers, it is very common to see Asian people wearing masks. There's a lot of Asian people who are not, and there's a lot of Americans who are fully American in their culture. And I'm, I'm not drawing anything here ethnically, more just culturally. We do see that there is less stigma, in a sense, there's less cultural stigma around wearing masks in public in Asian countries where you've been through a number of these pandemic situations, where you have had this type of threat more often than we have here in the West. If everyone wore a mask, the best science that I have seen, 
the best science that I have been exposed to suggests that everyone wearing a mask would be more effective than quarantine. I'm not saying it'd be 100% effective. I'm not saying that it would, you know, stop everything all at once. But if we're trying to expand out this curve and make things a little more manageable for our healthcare system by slowing down the transmission of this virus, by all accounts, wearing masks in public would do that. Here's the thing. I don't think we'll do it. I don't know as Americans will actually do it. When I step back and I look at like the cultural shift that would have to happen in order for this to make sense, I don't know. Maybe they could do this in New York. Maybe. Maybe they could do this in California. Maybe San Francisco would ultimately do this. I don't know. I have a hard time seeing Minneapolis do it. I have a hard time seeing my little town here, people doing it. I totally get it. Like it makes perfect sense. And and I think, you know, if we wanted to get people back to work, if we wanted to get the economy back going again, if we wanted to restore some sense of normalcy, if the cost of doing that was that we created a bunch of these N95 masks and everyone wore one whenever they were out in public, that would, according to the science I've seen, have more dramatic impact on the spread of coronavirus than having everyone quarantined at home. Could we actually do it? It's not clear to me. If I had to bet right now, I would bet that we can't. And it feels a lot like those Norse Greenlanders. It feels a lot like I'm starving to death, but I can't bring myself to eat fish. And it's not that fish will kill me or, you know, I don't like fish because I'll eat something I don't like rather than starve. But that my culture, my sense of who I am and where I am in this society prevents me from even considering that as an option. Are we going to be at the same place with masks? I don't know. It feels like we might. And if you're thinking about, you know, will I wear a mask or will I allow dozens of people, hundreds of people, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, potentially hundreds of thousands of people to die because I would resist or large numbers of Americans would resist wearing masks in public for the next six months, nine months, 12 months, two years. Are we ready to go there? Like, is, is that really a decision that we'll make? I think, it, I think it might be. And how could you say that that's not a cultural decision? It seems like 100% cultural. It seems like our American culture would just patently resist that to the point where it would become an ineffective solution to the problem or an ineffective way of managing the problem. Here's why I've been dwelling on this and here's why it's in my mind and I've been, I've been hashing this over and over. We are now confronted with the fragility of our development pattern. To the extent that we have an economy today, what we're going to see bounce back is not going to be the, the national chains. It's not going to be the franchises. It's Essentially, anybody who is up to their eyeballs in debt, and if that debt is part of a bond market where it's been cut up into a bunch of little pieces, securitized, wrapped up with a bunch of other funky debt, and then sold as a debt instrument, those things are going to blow up. I mean, unless we're going to have trillions and trillions of dollars ongoing as bailouts, like repeated over and over and over again for as long as it takes to bridge this gap. And then I think you've got other problems. But, but you know, that's what it would take to keep a lot of these places from blowing up. 
places that have increased their share prices, increased their executive compensation, increased their size of their business by taking on lots and lots and lots of debt. Understand, that's been our economic strategy. Yeah, I saw a really funny quote this week. It said, uh, one thing that the coronavirus has taught us is very clear that if aliens landed on Earth and were threatening us, the very first thing we would do would be to lower interest rates. <laughs> you know, it's like the <laughs> the default solution. Like, okay, uh, we've got a problem. Let's just make it easier for people to borrow money. The efficacy of doing that when the problem is indebtedness. You know, if, if, if you are an indebted company, you cannot have two weeks of not operating because you have debt payments that are coming up. And if that debt payment is not to a local bank where you can go sit down with them and, and talk about it and say, look, you know, we're having a tough time here. Obviously, we're going to miss a couple months payments. Can you refinance and extend my terms and let's figure this out? If your debt is of that variety, there might be some options for you. But if your debt is of the variety where you've sold it on to an international bond market, it's been purchased as a bond, the thousands of different issuances that are out there have been mixed and amalgamated with bonds from a whole bunch of other companies, some good, some junk, what have you. They've been packaged into securities and they're now owned by thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of different people in different places. You, you can't go negotiate, renegotiate that debt. You've got to make that debt payment. You, you don't have the opportunity to renegotiate that debt. The only thing that you are allowed to do is to refinance it somewhere else. Well, who, who's going to refinance it for you? Nobody. That's why we see all this craziness now. You know, the Federal Reserve buying up all this debt, the Treasury buying up all this debt. You see this because these places are, in a sense, rigged to blow. We have to change our development pattern. If we want to experience a robust recovery at the local level, if we want our cities to grow stronger and more prosperous, if we want to see cities that don't collapse after two weeks of idleness, in a sense, we have to think differently about our development pattern. Can we do that? Are we culturally able to do that? Are we culturally able to say, you don't need parking if you're building a new building? If, if you're going into an existing building and you're reopening, you can do that without adding parking. Are we capable of doing that? Are we capable of thinking about neighborhoods where you wouldn't actually drive? And I don't mean a niche neighborhood here and there where some crazy developer comes in and says, hey, I, I went to this CNU conference and I got these new ideas I'm going to try. No, I'm talking about large scale. Like, could my city of 14,000 just say, you know what? Um, we're we're going to have the dominant mode of transportation be walking. Because everybody lives in a walkable neighborhood. Everybody lives close enough to walk. And so we're just going to design everything to make it easy to do what is very natural. Like, could we ever do that? Could we ever say to the chain franchise restaurant that comes in, we're not going to bend over backwards for you. We're not going to give you the subsidy. We're not going to run the sewer and water out to your site. We're not going to roll off the red carpet for you. We're just not going to do that. But, but, but that local mom-pa diner, you know, hey, that, that's a different thing. Like, let's talk. Let's figure out how we make this work for you. Could we ever culturally do that? I think of how long the lines were here in my hometown 
when the Olive Garden opened. By the way, the Olive Garden is now closed. Again, same kind of debt things. Um, and this was closed months before coronavirus. This was closed last year. We had long lines again when Chipotle opened, when uh, Five Guys opened. There were lines around the street of cars waiting to get in. Um, we cheer all these places. The local Mexican restaurant opens up. You can walk in there anytime and get a seat. There's no line. There's no people lined up around the bend. There should be, but there isn't. We culturally have this, uh, it's not quite hierarchy that we've set up the way the, the Norse Greenlanders, but we certainly have a shared culture and a shared understanding of what success looks like, what prosperity looks like, what a place that is successful looks like versus a place that is not. Can we change that cultural understanding? Are we capable of doing that? Are we, when faced with an existential crisis, are we able to adapt and change our thinking? Or are we just going to, in a sense, double down on the values that got us here? I don't know. I feel like this is the big question though, right? The Nordic Greenlanders could not eat fish. They couldn't bring themselves to do it and they chose to die instead. I don't think we can wear masks. I just don't think Americans will do it. And so are we going to be willing to die in large amounts because people won't wear masks for whatever cultural reason here in this country? Quite possibly. Are we going to be willing to have our cities commit financial suicide to go down this very dark path of continuing to gut themselves, continuing to make themselves financially more insolvent, more fragile, less resilient? And are we going to do that in the guise of this is how we recover our economy from this pandemic? I don't know, but I suspect we might try. How do we do something different? And this, is, this is kind of what I struggle with. You know, like who was the North Greenlander, the strong towns Nordic Greenlander who stood up and said, you know what? This way we set this up might have worked when we lived in Scandinavia. It might have worked even when we lived in Iceland, but it doesn't work here. We got to change. We got to do this differently. Like who was that person and what made them effective? You know, my guess is that they didn't run around saying the sky's falling, the sky's falling, repent or, or you will die. They could have said that and they would have been right. Um, but my guess is that, you know, the effective one wouldn't have done that. Or maybe that's what they did. And that's why nobody listened to them. You have to, in a sense, start your story where people are. You can't start where you wish they were. So what does that effective advocate look like? I think this is what we're struggling to figure out today. At Strong Towns, we're trying to do this. The articles that we put out, the podcasts we put out are all designed to help you not only think through these issues, but communicate them with others. The way we make this change, the way we avoid the fate of the Nordic Greenlanders, the way we avoid the fate of the people who, uh, you know, the society that won't wear masks, is to start having this conversation in a very personal way with the people that we know. I feel like I could sit down with my mom and dad and I feel like I could talk them through the reasons why they should wear masks. And if we all, in a sense, were doing that with the people around us, I do think we could make a difference. I, I do think we could change 
cultural perception enough. I, I look at what they're doing in the Czech Republic. I'm a fan, as you know, if you listen to this podcast, of Tomas Sedlicek, a Czech economist. I follow him on Facebook. It's been fascinating to watch because even over the last two weeks, they've been doing like TV interviews and you know high profile of cultural people on television. And guess what? They're wearing masks. The person doing the interview is wearing a mask. The person being interviewed is wearing a mask. It's very strange to watch. You know, it's kind of jarring, you know, from my Western eyes. Uh, it looks like two people about to do a bank robbery, standing there talking about politics or talking about public policy or having some deep intellectual conversation. It's very strange. It's very strange. Yet by going on the air, by going on the air and doing this, by by acting normal, like this is normal, um, these people are, in a sense, leading others to normalize the same positive behavior. Are we capable of doing that? I don't know. We might be. But I can tell you, in our cities, towns, and neighborhoods, if we want to make them strong, if we want to make this pivot, if we want to get through this transition with our places healthier and getting better, what we need to do more than anything else is start to talk to each other about what these changes look like. What it means to live in a place that is financially strong and resilient. What it means to have a neighborhood that evolves and adapts over time, as opposed to being locked under glass and stagnant in place. What it means to have a society that favors people who are walking and biking, as opposed to the throughput of traffic. What it means to not have cheap, abundant parking everywhere you go, but to actually have to think about the trips that you would make and when you would make them and how that would fit into your day um, and your willingness to you know, pay for the reduced number of parking spots that would be there. These are things that we have to start communicating to each other in language that is personal for us. We try to talk about things in universal ways here, but really the most effective places are the ones who take our message and translate it into a local message of strength and resiliency. Here's what this means for us. Here's what we do. Here's how we get to the next step. We have huge challenges ahead of us, but the one that we can start to get ready for right now, the one that we can process and work through and put ourselves in a better place is the mental challenge that comes with this transition. If we can take this time, this downtime, uh, this time of idling, in a sense, and put that mental capacity that is on the sidelines now to work, making this cultural shift, we will find that the time we've had off has not been wasted and that we will emerge from this situation and find ourselves quickly in a place that is stronger, is better off, is more prosperous. And in some ways, and this is not to minimize the death and the suffering and the anxiety and everything that people are going through, but I think we'd all agree that the ideal situation at this point is to emerge from this crisis quickly, but to also learn the lessons so that when we do emerge, our places are stronger. They are better. We do enjoy a greater prosperity. We do emerge as better people when we cross through to the other side of this crisis. I want you all to take care out there. Um, look after your friends. Look after your neighbors. I know a lot of us are 
locked indoors, but that doesn't mean you can't check on the people that are around you. So make sure we're all doing that. Keep hanging in there, everybody. I I hope to see you on the webinar. If I don't, we'll see you back here soon. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.